in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, it's, you know, when we read this, we see that the God and Word, the Logos, they are together from the beginning, and yet they're not the same. Uh, so, that Word is distinguished from God, identified with God, and and declared as God. The, the doctrine of Trinity, one of the things that I want us to, uh, to remember is that, uh, you know, there, there is a lot of people who keep talking about, uh, you know, the scholars, they have the, uh, that there's no, doc, there's no Trinity and all of that. The rap that Trinity is God, the fact that Trinity, the word is not in the Bible, the the fact that Trinity was, uh, was somehow invented in the 4th century. And so, what happens is people want to not talk too much about it because it seems to be you know, beyond our comprehension. Um, but even as we read this, John 1.1, 1, 1, we see that the Bible is very clear. And so there's something that we cannot, this is something that we cannot avoid. Even as you begin in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning God. The word God is Elohim. It's the plural, God in plural. One of the things for the, uh, you know, God being one, Shema which is Genesis, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And even there, under that, uh, if you look carefully, you will see in the vocabulary that there is something that God wants to share with us, but is not completely revealed. I'll tell you what. So if you take those phrases, it says, you know, the Lord, which is Jehovah, L capital, O capital, R capital, D capital. That's Jehovah. That is in the singular. The Lord your God, which is Elohim, is in the plural. And the word one is the word ekad. Uh, it's unity. It's joined together. It's the same word used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And the two shall become one flesh, talking about Adam and Eve and thereafter for uh, what happens in the marriage. So, the, though there is, uh, you know, the vocabulary hints at it, it starts to progress and it becomes, um, as we see, the, what we call the trinity. And if we miss that link, if we miss that out, then we will derail ourselves. Uh, what we want to do is... Um, uh, we, we want to, pro- we will look at the essence of Trinity, we, but move quickly on to why we can be thankful for Trinity, okay? So that is what we want to do. In fact, in, um, in our uh, Christian faith, there are two great mysteries. One is the mystery of Trinity. One God, one, one in essence, and three in persons. And then the second is the duality of Christ. Two natures, one person. So the rest of the month, uh, between Gio and I, we are looking and trying to grasp, if you would, the truths of God. 
and we will be covering, uh, you know, how, what that means by the duality uh, in Christ. So that is what we have. If God tarries, we want to cover for the rest of the month. Uh, J.R. Packer writes it well, and he says, here are two mysteries for the price of one, the plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of Godhead and a manhood in the person of Jesus. So the reason I, I, I'm going to go very slow here, because there's so much in, in this, I want to use the right words uh, so that you would also understand what it is, because it's, it's a very important uh, doctrine, the two mysteries on which, if you would, the rest of our faith hangs in that sense. And that is, and I call it a mystery. We call it a mystery, and it's an intentionally, I want to call it a mystery. We'll come back to see why I call this a mystery. But I want to warn us right at the beginning that it is not possible for us to fully comprehend God. We must understand. So this concept of Trinity, the doctrine of Trinity, at the end of it, you might still say, I don't understand, but I have some, I know this is what the Bible is saying. Uh, It was said about Augustine. Augustine, who writes a lot about Trinity in in the, uh, you know, the, uh, in the, um, I forget which century, but uh, he's talking about a time when he's walking down the beach and he sees a child digging a hole. And so he asks him, hey, what what, what are you doing? So he says, I'm digging a hole. And um, so Augustine asks him, what are you doing that for? The child says, oh, what I want to do is I want to take all that ocean and all the water in that ocean and dump it into this hole that I'm making. And Augustine was a was a man who would think, and he, he, he says, you know, well, that's a great example of what we try to do sometimes. We take, to try, try and take the infinitude of who God is, the, the, the greatness, the vastness of who God is, and trying to fit that into our limited mind. God is God because we don't fully understand him. And so I want us to be, um, uh, you know, to, to, to under, underscore that, all right? So let's just pray as we start. Father, we pray that as we speak about, uh, about the doctrine of Trinity and trying to understand, Lord, what the word has for us, we pray that our, um, Lord, our eye, eyes would be opened, our hearts would be challenged, and our lives, love would be changed and Lord, that we would be, uh, uh, we would be passionate about the majesty of who you are. I want to thank you again, Lord, in Jesus Christ, Lord's name. All right. So, like I said, what we want to do today is we want to affirm a Trinity, and then we will see how we can be thankful for Trinity. So let's just, uh, if I were to give you a definition of what Trinity is. Trinity is God, one in essence, and three in persons. One in essence, and three in persons. One in substance, and different in subsistence. And I, what, what we'll try and do is we will go through the, um, you know, the three affirmations, as it's called, in Trinity. The three affirmations, one is this. We affirm that there is only one God. We affirm that there is only one God. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. And second, we believe in one essence. 
or maybe say one essence, it talks about the unity of God, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is each and each fully and eternally one God. Unity. And then the third is three persons, which is distinct. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit is each a distinct person. Now, I've used some terms. I've used uh, essence. I've used uh, unity and distinct. And what we'll try and do is go dig a little deep and understand these words so that it becomes clear for us. All right? So one of the things that when we talk about Trinity is the difference between distinct and unity. Or distinct and not being able to separate. Unity. Distinct and unity. All right? So distinct means that they are different from each other. They're distinct. They're different from each other. And unity means they're, they're different, but they cannot be separated. Let me give you an example. Now, this example is just so that we can understand the difference between distinct and separation. This is not an example to prove or explain to us Trinity. Okay, I hope you're clear about this. And so you take the person, you look at me, and you would say, I have a body and I have a soul or I have a spirit. The soul is not the body. The body is not the soul. They're too distinct. And yet, you cannot separate it. The moment you try and separate it, I'd be dead. So, you become clear there that this distinction as in too different, and yet, they cannot be separated. All right. So, we'll also look at the difference between essence and person. Essence and person. Now, what is essence? Essence is the state of being. It defines the, the, or what characterizes God. Essence, uh, we always talk in terms of attributes. What do I mean by that? What, what does an attribute mean? So if you, were to, if you were to define me, you would say, okay, I'm six feet tall, handsome. All right, okay. So, all right, you get the point. The point is, the way you would explain who I am is by giving me attributes. It's, it, that's what characterizes, right? So that's what essence, we can explain essence. But essence is what defines or characterizes the person. So when we talk about God, what are some of the attributes we give, we say? That God is omnipotent, omniscient, is eternal, he's holy. Those are some of the attributes that we can see. And what's interesting is when God reveals himself in his essence, he uses the name Jehovah. And it's always in the singular. When God wants to use and show us his essence, it's in the singular. Then see what happens when it is person. Now when you talk about person, uh, I know we struggle with with this thing. We've always used this term that the Lord is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And I'm not sure <coughs> if, you, if, if you think that way, but sometimes we think that there are two persons sitting, two bodies. That is not what it is. There's only one God. There's only one throne up in heaven. And so when we talk about persons, we're not talking about bodies as much as personalities. So what makes me a person is my personality. And so each of them have an individuality, each of them express emotion, each of them communicate. And so we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each of them able to, uh, each of them in their individuality communicating. 
and having emotions and all of that, okay? We also see that they have different functions. Different functions. In Ephesians chapter 1, 1 to 15, we won't look at that, but in Ephesians 1, 1 to 15, we will see how the Godhead is revealed to us in the three functions that are there. In from verse 3 to 6, we see it's God the Father who devised the plan of salvation. And then in verses 7 to 13 of Ephesians chapter 1, we see it's God the Son who carries out the plan by shedding his blood and wins for us the redemption and, uh, and salvation. And from verse 14 <coughs> to 15, we see it's God the Holy Spirit who includes us in the Spirit, resides within us as a guarantee that our redemption would be complete. The language that is used is very specific. Okay, and so we will see that in their functions. Uh, another thing that we can say in our atonement, it is not God the Father who died, it is God the Son who died. It's God the Father who sends, God the Son who dies. And God the Holy Spirit who lets, who communicates with us the reality of what's happened in salvation. So there is this distinction. And yet, in the unity, in the essence, it is one God. And uh, what's interesting is when God wants to express in terms of his attributes, the most common name that he uses for himself is Elohim, which is the plural Elohim, as we saw, seraph is seraphim, cherub is cherubim, el is Elohim. And so God in the plural, the singular plural as the Hebrew language would put it. So in Trinity, we have three persons in the Godhead who are distinct as distinct individuals, but they are not different. I think it's, you might get a little headache, but... I wanted to, I wanted us to understand, therefore, right at the beginning, okay? So you might think that's a contradiction. That's, how can that be? What are you trying to say? So I want to spend some time in trying to differentiate uh, the three things. One is that one's called a paradox or one's the contradiction. The second is a paradox and third, a mystery, so what's a contradiction, what's a paradox, and what is a mystery? Okay, so stay with me as we go through this. So one is contradiction. Now the law of contradiction says this, that if it is true and false at the same time and in the same way, then it's a contradiction. You're not with me. I'll give you an example, all right? If I were to say I had lunch, and then if I say I did not have lunch, then there's a contradiction. Right? That's a contradiction. If I say I had lunch, and if I, so if A equals B and then A does not equal to B, then there is something wrong in the same way, in the same time. But, but if I say I did not have lunch and I was re- referring to yesterday, and if I say I had lunch and I'm referring to today, then it's not a contradiction. Because it's not, it's in the same way, but not at the same time. Okay, stay with me, stay with me, so that you understand this contradiction, okay? Contradiction must be same way, same place. 
But then you, you go to what is paradox. Paradox is, it looks like a contradiction. But when you look at it closely, it is not a contradiction. I'm not sure how many of you had to write essays. We had to write an essay. A child is the father of man. Have you written anybody? I'm the only one who had to write it. Oh, uh, okay. We had to write an essay on that. Man is a child of, sorry, the father of man. And uh, so that seems like a contradiction. But when you really think about it, you know what is being said. Let me, let me give you two biblical uh, paradox, if you would. Matthew chapter 23, verse 11 says, The greatest among you is the servant. The greatest among you is But we know from the truth of the Bible that if you really want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to be serving. And then the Lord Jesus Christ, in John chapter 14, verse 28, he says, My father is greater than I. But then in John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and my father are one. It seemed like a contradiction, but it's only a paradox because in, in contradiction, we said it has to be at the same way and the same time. This one is not in the same way, though it's at the same time. Okay. Uh, you had your coffee, so you stay with me on this, okay? See, why? Why? Because as the uh, Athenian Creed actually puts it really well, what it says is the first is in terms of his humanity and the second is in terms of his deity. At the same time, in his humanity, he says the first part, and in his deity, he talks about it in his, in his equality. Okay? Right, so what we're left with is a mystery. Mystery is something that we hold to be true. It would be so easy. I would really think if Paul and Peter and James and all are sitting together, it says, now the Lord is gone. Let's make up our own religion. Right? The first thing that they should have dropped is this mystery of Trinity because it's just complicating things. It's difficult as we sh- uh, share the gospel with some, some people and they'll say, yeah, you guys believe in three gods. Say, no, 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 we believe in one God. And then we get into that. It would have been so easy to share a gospel, and yet we must recognize that this is God who we're talking about. The Trinity is the truth. And what we want to see today, therefore, is how is this, how is this Trinity uh, making a difference to us? Like, why are we thankful? Why can we be thankful for the Trinity? But just before that, what I want to do is, um, like we said, that in, 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 as we talk about the essence of God, we speak about his attributes. I want to give you a whole list of uh, verses that talk about the various attributes which is given to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All right? So we talk about eternality. All three of them in the Godhead are eternal. Holy, true, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, creator, sanctifier, author of all spiritual operations, source of eternal life, teacher, raising Christ from the dead, inspiring the prophets, supplying ministers to the church, salvation, baptism, benediction, one in essence, three in persons. And as attribute, we understand one thing, if if God is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, there can be only one God, and yet we see 
the three persons are given all of those attributes. And that can only be explained in the Trinity. So, we, at the end of this, we're not fully able to understand easily how that works. But we have hopefully some fair idea, if you stayed with me. Okay? But this is where I want us to really get charged on. Because true, we can understand the mind of God. We can understand who God is. But we can see how that's played out to us. And our hearts can rejoice in the fact that this is God we're talking about. Okay, so the first one, I want to say we can be thankful because God is self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. He wasn't dependent on his creation for expression. He communicated, he loved, he interacted in the Godhead even before creation. You see, if God is self-sufficient, then from that benefits grow out of us. You see, if he was dependent on us to communicate, to talk, if he were to do anything, then you have a dependent God. When um, Moses asked the name of, uh, if they asked me, what's your name? What do I tell him? And he says, I am that I am. He's saying that I am the self-sufficient one, the past, the present, and the future. This, I am that I am. In um, <clears throat> Egypt, where he, was, he had studied and he had all the knowledge. They, too, from archaeological evidences, they, too, get the sense that they had the supreme God, the Ra God. Though they had different forms of God and also they believed in one supreme God. But they, they never could assume or they never believed that that God is a self-sufficient God. Because in the night, he seems to be all overpowered. And when, when, when you say, I am that I am, he's talking about a God above the, the, the sun, as it were, the Ra God, that there is a God who's self-sufficient, who is not dependent on anyone else. Okay, so we have a God who does not depend on us. He's self-sufficient, so that we can depend on him. But it also means, as a result, that love is eternal. Why does that mean that? Why, why, see, God is love is actually a Christian understanding. When, when you say God is love, no other faith will teach you that God is love. Or we can see that God is love because of this, because if God were alone, as opposed to being one, that Trinity is, if God were alone, if he's single, the one God, as in one person, then his love is either for himself, which is self-love, and as the history will tell you, all the megalomaniacs, all the dictators, I'm not sure if you knew all of these top 10 dictators in the world who loved themselves, they were responsible for 150 million deaths of their own people, most of which which happened in the last century. So self-love can be very dangerous. And um, selfish and narcissistic. We see in the Trinity. I want you to turn to John chapter 17, verse 24. John chapter 17 and verse 24. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Come down to verse 26. I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What a wonderful thing. This morning we, we read about, um, read the Psalm, Psalm 136. And it says there that he created because his steadfast love endures forever. You see, it is his love that made the creation. It wasn't creation that was required for love. Do you understand the difference? I, I, I hope you understand this difference. It's love that creates, not that creation made love possible. That's because then if creation made love possible, then love is a creation. It's not an attribute of God. Do you get that? Love is an attribute of God from eternal past. And because of that, because of the fact that God had, there was this love that I can understand. It's because of the love that I can, I can be assured. The, the steadfast love that doesn't break, that tells me of his love for me. When I think about such things, that, you know, there's this verse in Psalm 103, verse 17. It says, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. His steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting, from everlasting past to everlasting into the future. That's a steadfast love. I don't even understand that, but I can only be thankful to God. So it's not in my understanding the Trinity or his love that I can praise him. It's because that even in spite I don't understand, I know this to be true, that my heart fills up. It's the love that was there from the beginning of the world that assures me that his love will continue even after the end of this world. It's a steadfast love. It's, it's just God who since morning has been directing our attention to the steadfastness of his love. Just a good reminder for us. When we beat ourselves up and we say that, you know, I'm messed up, I'm not where I should be, and we start to think that the God of eternity, the King of kings and the Lord of lords would love us so much. And it also says that relationship becomes meaningful. He's not just a God of love, but a God of relationship. You see, if you have an impersonal God, that's what uh, I keep referring to Einstein. He believed in an impersonal God. An impersonal God cannot relate. A unipersonal God, that is, if God was one, single, he'd be lonely and unable to relate because then what's happening with creation, it's, it'll be the power of created love, the creator of the world. It would be power that our created love. Uh, and so when you see that the essence is power instead of steadfast love, then the approach to this relationship becomes almost dangerous. You see, love without 
sorry, power without love, power without love is terror. Love without power, a power that can save, power that can um, bring us to himself is quite useless. And so we see that in Godhead, we see that this expression of love has been from everlasting. We know in his attribute that he is a God of power, the almighty God. He shows himself right at the beginning. Genesis 1.1, he says, Elohim, the sovereign one, the almighty. That's what Elohim means. Love and power coming together in Godhead. And we want to thank God for that. It's also that uh, in Trinity we see perfect submission. Perfect submission. The submission of God the Son is from eternity past to God the Father. It was not temporary. This submission was not while he was on the earth because in Psalm 40, what does it say? Or in Hebrews, it says, it's written of me in the book, lo, I come to do thy will. He is a lamb slain before the foundation of the world and all of that will tell us that there was a will that father had and that will was what the son was willing to do as he came down to this world. And so when you look at... um, when you look at submission or the order, we must understand it does not talk about inequality because there's no inequality in God. It talks about a, 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 a order. And therefore, as we look at Trinity, one of the things that we can take away is that this, that because of what I see in the triune God, the order, the order in church, order in family, is possible. See in um, <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter five verse twenty one. It says, "Submit one to another in the fear of the Lord." Submission is possible. Ephesians five twenty two. Wives, submit to your own husband as unto the Lord as unto the Lord. Ephesians 5.24, church submits to Christ as we read in that verse. Submission, therefore, is not subjugation. It is not evil. It is, it, it, it is not something that takes advantage of. And we see that in the Godhead. They, they are, they, the, uh, we see the Father having the unique role of initiating, planning, directing, sending, and commanding. The Son having this role of joyfully agreeing with and supporting and caring. And the Spirit acts with joyful obedience to the leadership of both the Father and Son. That is how uh, one of the Bible scholars has put it. So we grapple with submission because of the sin in us, which finds it very difficult to submit, to think that And yet in Trinity we see that this is from eternity past and that this is the order that God has given in church, in family. And that as we trust him, that we will see that God would be glorified in our church and in our families. 
Now, there are three other possibilities that we don't have time. The fact, quickly list that without explaining it. One is a true witness. When God says something, we know that at the mouth of one or two or three witnesses, it must be established. And in Godhead, the witness is complete. And then when he makes a promise, you see, uh, we read about the, uh, in Hebrews, it says that he could not swear about, you know, um, he could not swear by himself. So there is accountability in that. What he promises, he will keep, keep. And then we also see that because of Godhead in Trinity, that we can have a Savior, the just and the justifier. Godhead, within the Godhead, both the just and the justifier, the one who, who's, who, who is the just God, and, and God the Son who comes in and, and pays the uh, penalty of sin for us. But what I want to uh, spend time is in this template of love and life. Trinity helps us to understand love and helps us to live life. If we haven't understood anything else, this is something that we can take away and apply to our lives. The template of love and life. You see, a religion might teach us to show pity. Religion might teach us not to harm others. But if we have to love, we need a template. And the template is found in Trinity. That the love that is of from everlasting is the love, as we read John chapter 17, the love with which you have loved me is the love that I'm passing on to them, that they may love each other, that the world would know that they are my disciples. It's a template. Being created in the image of God means at least this one thing, that we may know God, we may love God, and that we may love like God. In the image of God, that we may know God, that itself is beyond our understanding, that I would know God, the God of the universe. I want to challenge, I want to encourage you to go watch that video NASA released recently, uh, a 4.5 gigabyte photograph of of the closest Andromeda galaxy. It looks like a small star, but as they continue to zoom in there, they realize it's a galaxy that has had 100 million stars in that, in a little dot that we see from here. That God who made that with a breath of, with just a word, that we are invited to know him. And that we can love him. And that we can love others as a template. You know, um, yesterday we were doing some grocery shopping and there was a person waiting outside panhandling and one look and emotions rose up in me saying that I'm not going to give any money to, to that person. And as Joyce and I went in, we realized that, you know, that person was made in the image of God. That if God would love me, 
in spite of who I am. I'm to love in spite of who I think that person is. And we had to come out and we had uh, interaction, spoke to the person and, and more than we could bless her, I think we were blessed uh, in knowing the love is because not of our emotions, not of any good in us, is because we have experienced the love of God to the unlovable. The steadfast love of the Lord would cause us to love over and beyond hurt, over and beyond um, the bickering, over and beyond, uh, you know, the things that they've done to us. It's only because of the love within the Trinity, within the Godhead. And as we see in John chapter 17, that we are invited to participate. I pray that such love within the church, within the love that goes past all of these barriers would be experienced, would be ours to enjoy. Because this God is the God who makes it possible, as we will see. We will see that in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 to 15, to live, let the love of God compel us. Second Corinthians 5, 14 to 15 says, For the love of God, love of Christ compels us that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That our lives would be counted, that we are compelled to love, and that we live in our life, in our style, our everything. Every, every time we ask ourselves, there's one thing. Am I compelled by his love? And as a result, my actions would be to his glory. The compulsion that comes in is because of what we see in Trinity. And then, as you turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 5, we see the Holy Spirit in us enables us to love like God. Romans 5, 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. So if I were to say, I can't love that person, I can't love my brother, if I can't love my sister, if I can't love the, the people who are perishing, then I'm saying I don't have the Holy Spirit in me. Because Romans 5.5 5 tells me that the love of God is poured out into us through the Spirit that he has given. If I were to say, that is me, I can't love, then I want to say Christ died to change you that his love would be evident in us. We might fall, we might falter, but we can go to, the, to this God whose steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting and say, Lord, forgive, but you alone can show me how to love the unlovable, the ones who hurt me back again and again, the ones who I find so difficult to love. It's because of the Holy Spirit in us. The same love with which God loved God the Father, loved God the Son. The Holy Spirit in us is teaching us daily. 
And so we can love as God loved and live as God wants us to. We can love like God and live for God. Love like God and live for God. And that's what Trinity reminds us this morning. It's a good reminder that this mystery that we have not understood has for us something that we have taken so lightly, that our love would be like God and our lives would be for God. Father, we pray that your name be glorified. We pray, Lord, that even as you speak into our hearts through your spirit, we recognize, Lord, that unless we are filled by your spirit, we can't do the work of the spirit. That unless we bear fruit of the spirit, we, there's no evidence of, in us of the spirit in us that, that we need to, to waken up from that stupor, Lord, and to come back to you that we will recognize that there's nothing more that we can, we can, that we ever want except to experience your love and to share this love with our brothers, with our sisters, and with the rest of the world. So help us, God. In Jesus Christ, the Lord's name. Amen.